From childhood, you and I more than likely have been intrigued and curious about heaven. I remember as a young student going to a series of meetings and the speaker asked the question, how many of you here know that when you die, you'll go to heaven? And I didn't know that I would go to heaven and it intrigued me that people did have that kind of confidence and it was a desire to live in heaven for all eternity that drew my heart to follow him. It's not a bad motivation. God uses heaven, uses rewards as motivations. It's not the ultimate of motivations, but certainly legitimate, and God used that to draw my heart to him. I know that. As a young child, I can remember my grandmother, very old and in her last year or so of life, And as I would see her reading so much, she was reading about heaven, constantly reading about heaven. And I remember asking, why? Why do you read so much about heaven? And the answer was given in in a question. Aren't you about to go on a vacation? And our family was to be going on a vacation that summer to Hawaii and never been there before and said, haven't you as a family been reading about Hawaii, wanting to know what it's like before you get there? And my response was, well, of course. And then she said to me, likewise, I'm about to go there. I'm interested to know what it's going to be like. And she was reading all she could find about heaven. Well, in the text that we have before us today, we're going to now conclude a series in Revelation. And it's in chapters 21 in the first part of 22. And we will now be able to give our attention to the topic of the new heaven and the new earth and what's called the new Jerusalem. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. Hopefully you have them. Chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. Again, we're going to see the use of much imagery, symbols, pictures, and once again, reminding you that have been through the series and introducing you that are new today to the reality that the book of Revelation is written in picture form so that we can get a grander understanding than the mere picture itself. It's not designed to start and end with the picture. It starts with the picture, and our understanding goes from there. Now, with that in mind, we're going to be invited on a journey And this journey is going to be to tour New Jerusalem. But before we go on the tour of New Jerusalem, the tour guide, so to speak, is going to prepare us for our tour by having a brief question and answer period about what we're going to see. And so the question and answers have to do with the broader subject matter of the new heaven and the new earth And then the tour is going to begin, and we will not tour the whole new heavens and the whole new earth, but what we will tour is what's called New Jerusalem. And so with that, let's begin with questions and answers about the new heaven and the new earth. It's given to us in the first eight verses of chapter 21. I'm going to pose the questions that seem to be answered in the text. And so the questions are eightfold, and they begin, number one, what and where is the new heaven and the new earth? Verse one gives us some insight. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. 
Now, a new heaven and a new earth is terminology used to describe the universe. Now, you and I think in terms of when we die, we go to heaven. And because we use that terminology, we think of, well, there's a new earth, and then we live in a new heaven, and what goes on on the earth? But really, the term heaven and earth used here is to refer to the universe. In the early days of Scripture, they would talk in terms of three heavens, a first heaven, a second heaven, and a third heaven. And we just think of the universe out beyond us and the earth on which we live. Well, as he uses the term new heaven and new earth, it's talking about the universe at large, inclusive of the earth that we live on. Therefore, to understand where is it and what is it, it's this earth. Now, the key to understanding this is the adjective that is used to describe it, which is the term new. There are two words in the Greek language for the word new that uh, is most commonly used, at least. One is the word that refers to that which is created new. We would say the earth was created new in Genesis. And so we would use, if we were using the Greek language then to describe that, we would use this first term. There's a second word that is used. It's the word used here, and it refers to something that already exists but is renewed or is made new. We talk about new wine in Scripture, and the new wine does not say something that's just created, but that wine that is made new over time, it is renewed, it is made differently. We think about our bodies. Many of us have studied the Scriptures of what's called the rapture. Our bodies, when we die on this earth, our bodies turn to dust, and they go to the earth. We are told, though, at the coming of Christ, I believe the time at which the rapture would take place, that our bodies are brought up to meet our spirit. If we've gone ahead and been with the Lord prior to this time, our bodies are joined with our spirits, and we are given new bodies. It's the same body, but it is renewed. For instance, we see the Lord Jesus in Scripture after the resurrection. He's in a new body. And we see him in that body, and, and he's not recognized by his disciples at first. But then, note that he is to be carrying the scars on his hands. It is his body, but it is a different body. It is a renewed body. It now no longer has the effect of sin. Now, Jesus did not have sin to begin with, but he did carry the effects of sin, pain, agony, punishment, all of those things that he went through, the effects of sin. And so we have a new heaven, a new earth. We are told in 2 Peter chapter 3 that the day will come like a thief in the night, the day of the Lord in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Just like the body is destroyed, many in fires. Those fires burn the body to nothing. But then that body is brought back by the miraculous work of God. It is a renewed body. And here we have a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. It says there will be no sea. The sea is symbolic of the unrest and conflict and judgment that exists throughout our history. It takes place after the fall. And it's saying to us there will be no more unrest. There will be no more judgment. There will be no more conflict. All is passed away. 
We would understand from the teaching of Jesus in John 14 that this new heaven and earth is a place as we think about the, uh, the new earth. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And so he saw it as a true place to live. So I would suggest to you that this is the new heaven and the new earth. Now, here speculation only. This is not the Bible teaches it so clearly, but it's a speculation on my part. I would see no reason that there would not be a new Atlanta, Georgia. Maybe you and I live in Atlanta. It's not the old Atlanta that we see right now, but it would be a new Atlanta which basically means no traffic, if you can imagine. <laughs> Don't know exactly what it would be like, and it doesn't mean there will be an Atlanta, Georgia, but I think those of us that are children here that have thought in terms of, well, when we go to heaven, we kind of float around all the time, and then we've got wings, and we're kind of doing some weird things, and no, it's not that at all. We live on this earth, and we talk about even now we live in our universe that includes heavens, and so it doesn't mean that we have to be floating around somewhere in the clouds, not at all. I would assume that we would live even here. Number two question, what will the new heaven and earth look like? Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, and it was coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, who is the bride? It would be the church, would it not? And so, in essence, the question being asked, you know, what will it look like, this new heaven and new earth? And he says, well, I'll just, I'll just describe Jerusalem for you. And then, maybe to some of our dislike, instead of really explaining what it looks like, well, there is an Atlanta, Georgia, there's the United States, or there will be the... He doesn't go into any of that detail. We don't know the answers to those questions. But he says, I will tell you what is most important. And he says, let me just take you to New Jerusalem, and that's where we'll see the tour begin in just a few moments. And we'll learn there, as we will see in Revelation 21, 9 and 10, that when asking the question, what does it look like, he simply describes his people. And the point being that the essence of heaven is the people of God in the presence of their God. And that's where he begins and that's where he ends. We don't see... A lot, But we do know that it's described in terms of a city, and the church was regarded in the Old Testament as a city. We talk about the Old Testament people of God as Zion, and so in the New Testament we talk about it as the new Jerusalem. And when we think of a city, we think of a place of permanent residence. We think of a large number of inhabitants. We think about safety and security. We think about fellowship. We think about beauty, and all of those things helping us to be understood through the symbol of a city called New Jerusalem. Notice it comes down from heaven. Both the church today and of the future is from above. It's a gift of the work of God's Spirit among us. It takes us to the third question, and that is, what will we do in the new heaven and the new earth? Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. I hope this answer is not disappointing to you. But the answer to the question, what we will do in the new heaven and new earth, we will worship God. 
We will simply worship God. Now, I know that there are those who have said, probably among us, I've heard it from several people outside this church who say, frankly, I would rather die and go to hell and raise hell the rest of my life than I would to go to heaven and be in an eternal worship service. And we understand what they're talking about. They're saying, one, you know, the preacher just keeps going and going and going. It's eternal. It drives me crazy. And this is the real deal eternal, and I can't imagine how long and boring it must be. And we think in terms of the, the excitement of a party when we're violating the rules, and it is for a season enjoyable. It brings great pain afterward. But we think of at least it's a, it's a party about to happen. And let me suggest to you, if you think that today, that this is a grand party in hell you're totally, totally wrong. Because in hell there is nothing but isolation. There's no one to party with. You're alone. There's loneliness as you've never experienced. It won't be a party. Not at all. It'll be everything but. And when we think about that eternal worship service, let us not think in terms of sitting in chairs and doing the things we do here on the Lord's Day to express our worship, that will certainly be included, I would suggest. But the truth of it is, worship is not something we do once a week as the body of Christ gathers together to applaud God for who he is. But worship takes place when we work. Worship takes place when we play. God says you should worship in all things that you do. Worship is giving honor to God in the way we live, the way we play, the way we work, the way we study as students, the way we do all things. We do it as worship unto our God. And so we live, let's say, in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I would assume we would have jobs that we would work. After all, prior to the fall, there was work being done. And that was in the Garden of Eden. That's when things were without sin. And so we would assume, therefore, that we would work and we would play and we would do the things that we have commonly thought about even on this earth. Now, I have to, I have to address this because I can't tell you the number of times I've heard it asked. Will there be golf in heaven? It is a major question for some. <laughs> Will there be golf in heaven? And I know most of you have probably heard it, but it's, it's, it's a humorous one. It's worth sharing if you haven't heard it. But the story of the two guys that were great buddies, golfing buddies, and one of them was on his deathbed about to die, and his friend said, Bill, listen, I, I want to ask you. You're about to go be with the Lord, and, and I'm so curious. I know you've been too. Will there be golf in heaven? And uh, If you would just, if there's any way possible for you to come back to this earth and some way communicate to me and let me know if there is going to be golf in heaven and if so, what it's like. And so the, uh, the friend said, well, if I can work it out, I'll certainly do it. And he died. And a few days later, he appeared to his friend. And his friend said, I can't believe it. You did it. You came back. And so now my question, is there golf in heaven? And his response, Bill responded by saying, well, there's some good news and there's some bad news about that question. He said, well, what's the good news? Well, the good news is, yes, there's golf, and I'm telling you, you've never seen the likes of the golf courses. 
I mean, Augusta cannot compare. St. Andrews would never compare. You can't imagine the beauty of it. Well, what's the bad news? You got a tea time tomorrow at 3 o'clock. <laughs> so the question, will there, be, will there be golf in heaven? I like Billy Graham's answer to his grandchild whose dog had just died. And he came to his grandfather and he said, Granddad, will my dog be in heaven? And Billy Graham wisely and correctly responded by saying, Son, if you need your dog in heaven in order to be happy, yes, you will have your dog in heaven. The truth of it is, we won't need our dogs to be happy in heaven. As much as we may love our pets, we don't need it. Can you imagine a little child, four, five, six, seven years of age, coming to you as a parent and asking you about heaven and saying, Mom or Dad, will there be PlayStations in heaven? Will there be Nintendos? Will there be the games that I love right now? Will they be in heaven? And you know what your thought would be. Honey, you're going to outgrow that Nintendo. You're going to outgrow that PlayStation. And it will mean nothing to you in a few years as you mature. And I have a sense, a feeling, that when you and I mature fully in Christ, that we're going to look at the things that bring so much pleasure now to us and say, even as the adult would look now at a PlayStation or a Nintendo and say, how is it I found such delight in it? I think it will be a comparative issue. Who knows whether there will be golf in heaven? But I know this. God will give us everything in heaven we need in order to be happy. Leads us to number four, which is found in verse four. The question being, what other benefits are there to, the, to be experienced in the new heaven and the new earth? Verse four reads, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no longer any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And that beginning of the first things passing away began at your and my spiritual birth. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things shall become new, the best translation of it. It's beginning to pass away. Now we have died, and it is all passed away as the new body is given to us, the new heaven and the new earth, and now there is no tears, there are no, there's no death, there's no crying, there's no mourning, there's no pain. It's all gone. And so any of you right now living in great intensive pain, it will one day be gone. And that's why it's the rest of the story that is so important. It looms before us, and if we can only live in the light of the future, we can endure the pain of today. But if we think it has no end, then we are hopeless. Number five question, what is required for a person to gain access into the new heaven and the new earth? I can't help but remember an occasion when I was in college. I was in a debate among a number of athletes at the University of Alabama, and it was... Uh, it was, it was a somewhat of a hostile environment. And as I against them were talking about the things of God, one of the athletes had made a comment about God and about heaven when I mentioned, you know, is there, 
any concern in your life that one day you have to meet this God and one day, you know, it's his call whether you get into heaven or not. And this one athlete responded to me and he said, I don't believe there is a God, but if there is a God and if there is a heaven and a hell, then I'll tell you what will happen. If God tells me that he's not letting me in that heaven, then I'm going to break down the gates of heaven. I'll run right over God and I'll take it over if I have to, but not even God keeps me out of heaven. I looked at him and said, you have no idea about the God about which you speak. You have no clue. Folks, it doesn't work like that. The entrance into heaven is given with condition, and here are the conditions, five through seven. There are two that are mentioned. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life. That's eternal life. And without cost, it's free. There's your first stipulation, you must thirst. And then number two, he who overcomes shall inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. To thirst means to come before God and say, I have got to have what you offer. In analogy, it's a drink of the waters of life. It's eternal life. God, you've got to give it to me. Please give it to me. And until you and I come to the place in our lives where we are hopeless without salvation, that we would fall before God saying, I'll give up whatever it takes to have eternal life. I thirst that much. What good is money? If you're about to die of thirst, you'd give up everything you have to get something to drink. And likewise, he says, that's what we do. We give up everything in terms of the lordship of Christ to say, now you, I want you. It's your intention that he be Lord over all. Maturity will bring you further and further in that direction, but it is your desire. I want you to be my all. And how do you know if you really thirst? Tell you how you can tell. You overcome. The man that counseled me the day that I, best I could tell, gave my heart to the Lord, very wisely said to me, the way you will know whether Christ has come into your heart, whether you truly thirst, to use these words, will be based on the fact that, he didn't use the word you will overcome, but he says, your life will change. In other words, there'll be fruit in your life. Watch over the next two weeks, the month, month and a half, see what happens in your life. Sure enough, there was fruit in my life. And I learned that I was beginning to overcome now sin in my life and and loves of life that were inappropriate loves of life. Those who thirst and those who overcome shall partake of this great fruit. Leads us to number six. What if someone isn't allowed into the new heaven and the new earth? Verse 8 tells us, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's talking about those who live in habitual sin, giving evidence that there is no true work of God in their life. The only alternative to heaven is an eternity in hell. Now with that, I think I may have mentioned eight questions, six questions. With those six questions, 
Now we turn to an invitation to tour New Jerusalem. It's verses 9 and 10, and it reads as follows. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So the bride of the Lamb, the church, is the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, meaning it is given of him, it is a work that he has done. And so there's the invitation, come. Would you tour New Jerusalem with me? And so now the tour begins, chapter 21, verse 11, through chapter 22, verse 5. And we see, first of all, general characteristics of the city. Verse 11. It goes on to say about this bride of Christ, the New Jerusalem, having the glory of God. Do you remember how many times here, if you've been with us in years past, I keep bringing up the story of glory. This is the final chapter to the story of glory. Glory given in creation, renown. Glory stripped through sin, for we all sin fall short of the glory of God. Glory reestablished in our life as Christ indwells us. And then glory added unto glory as we grow as Christians. And then we're glorified when we die. And so here, having now the full glory of God. This is glorification. And it says, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Secondly, we see the city's great walls and gates, 12 through 14. And I, it had a great and high wall. And when we think of a great and high wall, we think of protection and security. And in reality, the church's possession of communion with God is our security. It had 12 gates, and the gates had 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north, three gates to the south, three gates to the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, the importance of numerology here. The numbers of Revelation have great meaning. We've already discussed this in part. But three represents the Trinity. We've already discussed this in the series. Four, the universe. And so here are 12. You put those two, multiply together, the Trinity's operation in the universe. And now you're going to see 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 names of the tribes, 12 foundation stones, and so forth. 12 becomes very important. Then we come to the third portion here of this tour, the city's boundary dimensions. Verses 15 through 17 of chapter 21, it says, And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod. And here's a very unfortunate translation, 1,500 miles. Those that were translating had no understanding, in my opinion, of the meaning of the idea of 12,000 stadia which translates to you and me 15,000 miles, which maybe helps us understand the enormity of this. But the reality is it's not really miles. 
It's not really stadia. It's the idea here of 12,000. You take three, Trinity, times four, universe. You get your 12 that's constantly being referred to here. And then the number 1,000, which refers to completion and perfection. And you have the complete and perfect result of the triune God's perfect power operating in the universe. And so 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal, which means this is a cube as we see it. There's a reason why that's described as a cube, and it's relating to the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. It, too, was a cube. First Kings tells us 20 by 20 by 20, and it is there in the Holy of Holies that on the Day of Atonement, that is Yom Kippur, the high priest would go in. It was a day of fear. It was a selective time only when humans could literally walk into the presence of God and only the high priest himself. And now we see the new Jerusalem. We have access constantly. It's not a a day of fear. It's a day of pleasure. This is the new Jerusalem. And so when we see the wall, verse 17, and he measured its wall 72 yards, again, very unfortunate 144 cubits is what it really says, and that's your 12 times 12, which are also angelic measurements, meaning don't take this to be literal for your human understanding. This is an angelic measurement. The fourth item on the tour is to see the materials, the city's construction materials, verses 18 through 21, and the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The foundation stone was jasper, and then it goes on to mention these different stones that most of us wouldn't understand even what they are, but there, notice there are 12 of them. And then verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, not literal pearls, but just showing the beauty and the value of it. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Think about it. Gold today is the God of man, and we worship the gold. And here the gold, the highest of value in our minds, becomes the very streets upon which we walk. Not literally, but saying this puts it in perspective. The best that you've got on this earth becomes that which we trample by on our feet, even though it be a glorious, glorious commodity. Then we see the city's temple and the city's illumination. Chapter 21, 22 through 24 says, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, they are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is its lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And then if you would go to our last verse of our text, verse 5 of chapter 22. There shall no longer be any night. They shall not have any need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. And I think it's pretty straightforward here. God is the light. 
And with him we need nothing else. The darkness has passed away. Evil, ignorance, gone in the presence of God. That leads to number six, the city's entrance procedures, verses 25 through 27. And in the daytime, for there shall be no light there, its gates shall never be closed. Let's pause there. In ancient Jerusalem, there was an hour at dusk that they closed the gates and the city was shut tight. It was for security reasons. Now, we see that in the new Jerusalem, the gates stay open all night. Now, in the old, you may be exposed to the elements. You had to live outside the gates and thieves and all that would be out there. There was danger. There was harm to be found. But not in the new Jerusalem. Now the gates stay open. You're in the security at all times. We never have to worry about being excluded from it. Then verse 26 says, And they shall bring the glory and the honor and the nations into it, and nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying, shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Number seven, the city's great garden. Verses 1 and 2 now of chapter 22. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street was this Lamb. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now the river of water of life we've already mentioned is eternal life. It's coming from the throne that is out of it. It is the source. It's out of God's sovereignty that it comes. The tree of life, that which sustains life is now ours permanently forever and ever. And then note the words, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Eternal life heals the scars of your and my misery. It's taken away forever and ever. And so lastly, the city's throne. Isn't it interesting? We started with the throne and we end with the throne. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 22. And there shall no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. You remember how we began the series for you that were with us? We said, here's the question. Is God in control? Do you believe he's in control? And so he begins at the cross of Christ, and he shows God on his throne, everything coming from the throne, even our pain, our suffering, our difficulties in the form of seals, whether it be the trumpets that warn the lost, and bring initial judgment, or whether it be the bowls of wrath that bring the final judgment in death to the lost, it's all coming from the throne. And then we see here at the ladder that now it's his blessing only that's coming from the throne. The good things as we know them. Everything coming from the throne. And it is my prayer, it is my hope that through this series that you have been introduced to the idea that God would be a sovereign God from which everything comes, certainly not the author of sin, but from which everything is part of his decree and his plan, 
inclusive of that which he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. And so now we conclude the series, and I would say first to you that are our seekers, if you've walked through the series, would you now say, I really want to go to heaven. I now see what I'm missing, and I truly want it. Some of you that would be saying that would be thirsting right now. Just come to him and say, I want it. Let me drink. Take the righteousness of Christ and let it be applied to your life. Some of you would say, I want it, but I'm not willing. I don't thirst as I need in order to bow the knee. And I would simply say to you, keep reading the word of God until the thirst is so intense that you bend the knee and fall before it. And to the Christian, the whole of Revelation I've entitled The Rest of the Story because the truth of it is until you and I see the end of the story, then we will never live today as we need to live. It's what Paul said in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time not to be worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed. And the story of Revelation is the story of the glory that's being revealed constantly. And we receive glory even through our trials. We receive the ultimate glory as we go to heaven. And only when you and I begin to live in light of eternity will we ever come to the place that we can translate today in such a way that we can accept it and live with it. And it's been my prayer, my desire, that many of you will be changed forever because now you know the rest of the story. And so the revelation begins in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads. Blessed are those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And it's been my prayer, and it remains my prayer, that you would be blessed because you've read, because you've heard, because you heed the words of the prophecy. The promise is you do that, and you will be blessed. I have been looking forward for three months to this day. It's over. We finished Revelation. And I'd like to say a word of thanks to each of you that have endured the series and it's not been your cup of tea. For whatever reason you felt lost or overwhelmed by it, I don't know. I say thank you because you've endured longer sermons than I typically preach, trying to pack so much in. I appreciate your patience in me not dealing with every detail. You've been a great congregation to stick through something like this. And my prayer, you'll never be the same because of it. Keep reading. Keep hearing. Keep heeding. Keep getting blessed as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your revelation. Thank you for not leaving us without knowing the rest of the story. And now our prayer for those that seek you that many would find, that they would thirst now, that they would drink and would find that eternal life even this moment as they receive your righteousness to cover their sin and you take their sin having dealt with it on the cross. 
Now, Lord, would you please grant to every believer that's here to live in light of the rest of the story from this day forward and forever. But we thank you and we pray in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen.